Hello, I'm Paul Gilroy. I'm the director of the Sarah Parker Riemann Center for the Study of Racism and Racialization at UCL. And this morning, I'm going to be talking to Gail Lewis, a visiting senior research fellow at LSE Gender Institute, erstwhile head of Department of Psychosocial Studies at Birkbeck College, a psychotherapist, insurgent intellectual. Gail was a member of the Brixton Black Women's Group years ago, founder, member of AWAD also, and she's written a lot on feminism, on questions of intersectionality, on the history of welfare and the welfare state, and of racialized and gendered experience, I suppose we could say, in the meeting space, the clearing that she's made, where black feminist, psychoanalytic, sociological, political sociological approaches to subjectivity, and history and culture enter into some fruitful dialogue. I know Gail's also an Arsenal fan, previously of the Wenger out persuasion, very loudly. I mean, you know, you and I share a certain North London formation. It's hard to know where to begin a conversation, really. But how do you see the situation we're in? Let's deal with that, first of all. Generationally, I know the importance of a generational dialogue is more than ever an urgent thing. And, you know, we have to do a lot of translation work. We have to cultivate a certain kind of patience with each other across the generational line. So I'm wondering how you're looking at this extraordinary and, you know, in many ways bleak situation that we're in. Do you have hope, resources of hope that you can draw upon? Well, hi, Paul. It's really good to be in conversation with you. And actually, it's quite soothing, actually, at this time, too, kind of part of the whole healing process, because I think these times are so, I'm confounded in a way, I'm confounded by these times. Because it feels as though there is both a despair, in me at least, a despair. And the despair that, you know, was particularly inaugurated in a loud version by the Brexit vote. And all of them that followed in the move to we are leaving and how we're leaving. And what that unleashed in terms of legitimizations around different forms of racism. The loudness of those racisms just on the street, the ways in which they obviously, they always fold into, you know, state forms of violence against racialized populations. So there was all that that then kind of got really accentuated by the deaths related to COVID, who seemed to be getting it. And of course, that itself was a measure of Britain's racial formation, who were in those locations whether they're employment locations or living conditions, because of Britain's racial formation, which is always denied, which drives us crazy. It's always denied. And yet here it is, you know. So there was that. And then there was obviously the sadistic murder of George Floyd, the way in which you could see the sadistic pleasure on that policeman's face. And we knew it was held as he would slightly bounce up and down on that man's neck. And the awfulness of that. But how that just triggers for us all the the deaths in custody here too. And oftentimes it's in mental health services. Deaths happen here. Obviously they happen at the edge in terms of policing, but it's also mental health, other forms of incarceration that are just hidden from view. So there's all that triggering. So the despair in me that arose from that, completely paralleled by a fragile, fragile, fragile hope that in two ways, really. One was the mobilizations of young people across the globe, you know, the the ways in which the young people came out under the sign Black Lives Matter. And I'll say a bit more why I think that's such a different kind of slogan than the ones that we used to mobilize under. But there was that and the way that that spread. 
But there was also the paradox of the virus itself, you know, captured perhaps no more kind of clearly than in it makes you unable to breathe. And yet the skies were clean so we could breathe. And that paradox of what was revealed by this COVID thing, revealing, you know, the locations of power, but also power's fragility and ineptitude. It didn't know what to do. And if we could find the fault lines, maybe we could carve a way in to something, I'm not a once and for all, of course, but something that might give us slightly stronger anchors for keeping pulling down the symbolic statues, if you know what I mean, the statues of power, the institutional practices of power, disrupting them a bit more. And that's how I felt for a long time with this complete swirl of how many have died today, where have they died, not just in this country, how terrible is this, what's going to happen? And then, but look at the mobilisations, look at what's happening, look at what's being revealed and can't be hidden anymore. Can we seize the moment? Can we seize the time? So I've been in this funny mix of things, funny mix of things. And generationally, it's funny because I have a kind of, probably it's nothing unique to me, but I think thinking about the intergenerational needs to happen, at least on two registers. There's the chronology, you know, there's the fact that we are now (laughs) the elders and we've got young ones coming up. I know (laughs) we've got young ones coming up who both repeat our mistakes but do it differently too. They've got their own versions. So it's not just simply a return. I think it's a bit of a spiral, you know, slightly in a different place. Yeah. But who also seem to seek us out for learning in a way that I don't think I did. In my, I don't think, I don't know, perhaps I'm, you know, perhaps it's some romanticization of now I'm old, I've got to find something that keeps me connected. But there is a way in which I'm in conversations with young people often doing different kinds of artistic, creative practice, finding those as the locations, the forms through which to articulate another version of life. Yeah, I think that's right. There is the possibility of that now. I think probably the technology feeds it to some extent, although I worry that a lot of them are so habituated to online life that they go searching for the past, they go searching for history, because searching for wisdom in the computer. <laughs> and of course, a lot of what's in there is inaccurate. And a lot of the things they need to know aren't in there. Yes. And, and I suppose, you know, our generation, I mean, what Linton calls the rebel generation, which yeah. I think is a good name, actually, not overly romantic name, but a good name. I think we've been culpable, even though it seems like we've done nothing else but try and tell the story. We obviously haven't told it in the right ways or repeated it where it needs repetition or adjusted the volume sufficiently to Mm -hmm. to speak into their lives. But they do want that information. They don't want to be reinventing the wheel. Well, not all of them do. Some of them don't want to reinvent the wheel. You know, some of them have been very, what's the word, impatient with the archive in a way. They think that I don't really need to know what the past is and the constraints that register around us. They're not used to thinking within historical limits. They're not used to thinking over long phases of time. Maybe in some ways that kind of perspective is more of a luxury. I don't know. I think it's just, in myself, I think it's just to be living a bit longer and being less susceptible to the allure of instantaneity, the idea that things happen straight away. You know, there's a kind of, I don't want to live in a friction-free environment. I don't anticipate that. But I know that we haven't done very well when you go to funerals, 
or you look around, you know, I mean, I can remember sitting next to Stuart at John LaRose's funeral yeah. and looking around the room and thinking who's in there and just thinking, what are the historians of the future if we don't make an effort to open up our lives and histories and archive things carefully and make the most of the opportunity that the digital technologies allow? And, you know, I don't know where that story starts for you. You've done a lot of experimental life writing, I guess we could call it. Mm-hmm. That the right word? Mm-hmm. Experimental life writing is clearly informed by your psychoanalytical, psychosocial abilities mm-hmm. to try and find different registers for communicating and so on, which speak across the generational line in different ways. And mm-hmm. I think that's a fantastic thing. I mean, I've been a bit reluctant to do anything like that for other sorts of reasons. And I think that's why is that so important to me? That's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about it, because we need to find those other vehicles for writing. And, you know, I, I did a conversation last week with George the Poet. Mm. He has a very interesting line about the importance of storytelling in this, the political failures that engulf us, you know, turning around or pivoting on the inability to find narratives that are compelling effectively. Mm. And I'm sure there's something to that too. Do you feel that your interest in the formation and the life of subjects in the psychic forms of suffering that people experience routinely in a racialized world, that this has helped you to find new ways of telling that story? Well, I don't know whether it's helped me to find new ways of telling the story. It's given me a way to tell stories that I feel I can tell in a way that I feel allowed me to escape the dryness and actually the evacuation of persons from the sociological version of talking. It felt to me that the sociology I knew, and I, you know, I did a sociology of social policy, so maybe there was something about that too. But there was a way in which, in the end, I'd sort of say, and where are the people in this? Where are they? You know, whichever people they were, whether they were elites and people with power to implement policy, or whether they were the people who were the subjects of that policy, where are they? So there was something about a need to try and capture aliveness. And I know there are all the complications about aliveness that we get from performance studies and all that kind of stuff. But nevertheless, a feltness of lived realities and the limits of that. And of course, I'm not, I didn't have the capacity to write novels or poetry that could deliver in that form. But I sort of found a voice through working through the space that opened for me in the gaps between these bodies of theoretical knowledge and knowledge production and their individual conceptual architectures. And what that taught me, Paul, and it relates to the generational stuff, is I really, well, I feel like I really came to understand that the concepts that we use through which we express our political imaginations and hopes limit us. They open up something, but they also limit us. So I could think about questions of subject position, say, from a kind of Foucauldian sociology. But the libness, the underneath the radarness of black life, say, the ways in which we kind of lived outside of our nominal categorizations felt to me, and it's a paradox because psychoanalysis is completely implicated in all of the stuff as well. Because of its notion of the unconscious, i.e. an element that is unruly, that cannot be captured, allows me to go from subject position, whether it's subjectivity, whether it's personhood, but it's something outside of the capture 
of discursive power and its institutionalization. So there's something about that. And I learned that fundamentally, as well as being on the couch and having my breakdowns on the couch and me emerging. <laughs> yeah. But what that's helped me to see, I think, is to think about the intergenerational question is not just one about the linear lines of inheritance from through the age, you know, one generation to the next in terms of a chronology of age, but also how we might be a generation of political imaginaries where age is nothing to do with it, is how do we understand the struggle? How do we think we can get there? What's the animating concept? What's the vision? What's the hope? Mm -hmm. And in that, then, we can see that you and I might sit alongside 26-year-olds and be a generation. But we can bring a longer field of experience to that conversation. And that's what I find there's a thirst for in the Black, feminist, queer cohorts that I kind mm -hmm. of connect with. And they give me light. Let me tell you, they give me an injection of life. I mean, they frustrate me sometimes because I think, no, 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 that isn't how it was. <laughs> no, 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 you got that out of a book, but have you spoken to any of them? People, yeah. I think that's true. I mean, but we don't have a history of OWAD. We don't have no. a history of the, you know, the queer black group. We don't have, and if we did, lots of things would look very, very different if we had those things. Yeah. And I feel very strongly that I don't want to be complicit in handing over the task of writing that history to a bunch of American graduate students, which is the way... Yeah. It's looking like it's going. Yeah. To be more serious about what you said a moment ago, it makes me think of two things, actually, which are interesting to me because of what I'm doing and what I've been thinking about and what's emerged in some of these conversations. Firstly, I suppose, about the sort of dominance of what's broadly could be called a, a sort of nihilism or Afro-pessimism among many of the younger activists whose fantasy, whose equivalent political imaginary is one devoid of love and joy entirely. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one thing, or at least it pretends to be. I don't think it really is devoid of love and joy. It just announces itself in the world as being devoid of that and makes that into a political virtue of some kind, a measure yeah. of sophistication and so on. And the other thing is, and this is a bit different, I suppose, I think about Freud and Freud's mm -hmm. absolute aversion to and dislike of music. <laughs> I can see you've got music behind you. Yeah, um, always. You've written about music too. So why do you think, at least that version of psychoanalysis has such a terrible problem with music. I mean, he wasn't just averse to it. He was averse to it in Vienna. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess in the end, who knows? Who knows? And I don't know enough about it. I kind of would put it down, I guess, to Freud's everyday psychopathology, no. his own. But, of course, what some psychoanalysts have done with it is to say, actually, music is exactly the thing that captures all of that stuff of life, of relationships, of so-called internal feelings in an external environment, captures all of that that cannot be articulated in words. And if we don't know that, all we need to do is put on the music and hear it. Mm. You know, I was thinking Mantana Roberts, when she does her version of the Oscar Brown Bid Em In, mm -hmm. And it's absolutely wonderful, but it's full of the torment. But at the end, she riffs it into a blues. And suddenly we have it announced in the musical form. Yes, yes, there is all this. We were on the blocks being sold. There was all this. But look, look, life kept beating on in its blues form. 
And it's that. And music is so, well, I mean, music's just sustained me. All of, you know, I know nothing about music, you know, at all, but I know that it sustains me and I know that it's the thing that has allowed us, I mean, you've written about it, Paul, in the whole, the parallel, the counter line in the kind of Black Atlantic modern, you know, that's kept us going and kept us developing the transmutations, the developments of the sound, and yet always with, in a sense, the heartbeat of we keep going. But I suppose that's what worries, my fear, my anxiety, I suppose, is slightly that, that a number of forces have conspired, have converged to say that what music meant in the generation to which we belong won't be allowed to recur in the future. It will not happen again. The alignment of forces that, that fostered that incredible flourishing, yeah. that blooming of politics, uh, musical, sonic culture, ethics, critique, a devastating view of the limits of capitalism and yeah. forms of estrangement that it relies on. But that doesn't seem to be possible these days for many people. And that, you know, for me, the measure of the transformation is captured in the fact that people wear headphones wherever they go. Yeah. I don't know how much music they're listening to. I haven't looked into whether anyone's researched that. Probably they're listening to podcasts, actually, which is another terrifying <laughs> thought. Although I do, actually, I really admire George the Poet's podcast because of the yeah. way they bring together a whole repertory of different yeah. of, um, sounding possibilities. So I do wonder about that. I wonder about where music is now, because, you know, obviously we know we've been separated from live music now and we can't have that. Prior to that, so many of the places, the sorts of holes in the ground that you and I used to frequent many, many years ago mm. are now closed and transformed by insurance, by criminalization in its new iterations, by the surveillance culture yeah. and all of that. So I'm wondering about where it goes and how it survives and how it finds pockets of space to grow in. You know, I'm, I'm worried that that sort of submerged public life is really harder to access now. You know, it's harder to find at least music isn't central to it any longer. I'm sure it still exists, but it exists in forms that are more distant from a sounding experience, you know, that hits you and you feel no pain kind of thing. I, I wonder... Yeah, many people... I think I don't know. I think I have a feeling that perhaps I... And this is absolutely a function of my age. I don't know where the young people go for their sounds. And certainly there isn't that moment of announcement of black presence that came when we were coming up, you know, with Jazzy B and all, all of it, the whole thing that emerged. But I think maybe we do ourselves and the current younger generations a disservice mm. if we try to find that announcement of presence through the same structures, symbolic structures yeah. and forms. Because if you think about all the work that's going on in terms of film production and other forms of kind of creative performance practice. Maybe that's where it's been. Yeah. And I know that, like when you were saying about the kind of Afro-pessimism, I recognised it. But of course, it's paralleled by, which I have some questions around, but it's paralleled by this other strand within a kind of black feminist queer politic of pleasure activism, which at its most simplest is a bit, you know, kind of fluffy but at its deepest is also a whole current of calling to account capitalist time 
and the ways it takes our private lives as well as our working lives. And the idea is that the activism part is to take time mm-hmm. and to take time to care for mm-hmm. oneself and others. And so that's a very different attempt to kind of organise a politic, if you like, than the Afro-pessimist yeah. stuff, even though they merge in. And I think it's important to do that. And part of that is all the cultural productions through the visuals, through the painting, through the performance art, you know, installations and stuff. So maybe it's there too, and it's different. It's like we were saying about the conceptual architecture of political vision. The notion of oppression takes you somewhere. The notion of pleasure activism takes you another place, you know, and Afro-pessimism yet somewhere else again. So maybe we need to think about what's gained and lost. And I love Dave's psychodrama, you know, that album, because it's so stages. I mean, partly, obviously, I love it because it starts off with, you know, the opening session. Hi, we're here. (laughs) Where would you like to begin? (laughs) And it captures it so beautifully. But, of course, it's in speaking back to that discourse and that field of practice, it's saying, if you're really going to do this thing that you say, which is to say, listen, you listen to every register and every word and understand that you call this thing that and we call it this. There's something that space that opens up is just fantastic I think and that's in a musical form well that, it's good actually in a way because you sound much more hopeful than me I know don't I I, that. <laughs> I hadn't anticipated that really I'm very glad to hear that I know I'm surprised <laughs> but it's good I mean actually what you just said also relate is that I don't want to reduce it to this formula but it's the only words that leap into my mind right now to a kind of politics of care to a politics of loving kindness as well as mm public performance, I mean, seems to me to connect up in some ways with the things that you have said about the importance of Audrey Lord's work. And I think she's suffered, my view is, that she's suffered a little bit in the way that she reappears amongst us as a, you know, I mean, I know she had her austere moments. I was on the receiving end of one or two of them, I think. (laughs) But actually, she emerges as a much more austere figure then I think the writing would really warrant, you know. I wonder what it is about how people are read so narrowly as to produce a kind of hole that they have to crawl through. She suffers from one of those, and, you know, poor Fanon suffers from another one. And they've recovered through, it's almost like, I don't know, you know, when our kids were used to play with sort of Play-Doh and you could crank a handle and it would force this sort of oh yeah out through a very small shape. Yeah. That yeah. would sort of regularize it and sometimes yeah. it would be a star and sometimes it would be a triangle, you know. I sort of feel there's a machine like that. And these sort of very labile, vital, you know, fungal bodies of thought and concern and energy mm-hmm. get sort of regularized and forced out into the world in a new kind of yeah. land that's unduly regular. And I feel that she I remember it must be a very long time ago now. I think you're probably the last person to write anything critical about Audrey Lord, really. Um, <laughs> and it was where you talked about her in relation to Hillsborough. Yes. And I, I thought, well, I'd remind you about that today because I think there's a lot to say. There's a lot of quarrelling to be done about mm. what work from that era should mean in these conditions. And I think the problem about the intergenerational relationships is that sometimes I think because of the dominance of online culture in so many political movements now, people actually lose the ability to kind of disagree with each other without, you know, without permanent rupture. Yeah. So I think 
cultivating the ability to disagree and to quarrel and and yet remain you know in, in touch and remain sort of yeah. loyal to shared projects and so on is not really captured in the language of allyship or the language of you know so much yeah. organizing it sounds so formal and and yeah. I worry about that really and about how one might restore to what's left of or what's emerging as a new black political discourse some of those qualities that people speak about resilience all the time but the actual ability to assume that shape that you were in before or the habitable one in the context of disagreement is a harder thing now maybe than it was yeah I mean who knows Paul that's interesting actually because I think so in that piece that I wrote in relation to Audrey and you know we did sit down I mean she called me and Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know but we did sit down and did groundings really and figured out what it was that I was disturbed about by this equation between Eleanor Bumpers and Indira Gandhi. And I guess, I mean, who knows? In a sense, I don't know what was in my mind at the time. I know that I was very, very preoccupied by the violence of Hillsborough, the state violence, and the ways in which it just went by. It just went by without comment almost, you know. And that I didn't understand why we couldn't connect up all the stuff that we know as black communities about the state and policing and the lies just couldn't quite connect it up of course there's something especially then about football and the terror racism on the terraces Mm -hmm. which went but is coming back a bit more because of post-brexit and what's been allowed again yeah and all that kind of stuff so there's something about what do you identify with i think that's important But the thing we knew about policing, we knew about policing. And so in my mind, there was something about how we have to differentiate. Well, we have to be able to connect up things that seem disconnected. And we also have to differentiate within feminism who the, where the violence comes from against women. Now, obviously, Eleanor Bumpers, it was the police and all that kind of stuff. So it was transparent. Okay. But I couldn't, and I still can't. I mean, Audrey sits on my shoulder differently, but I still can't do a straight equation between that and the murder of Indira Gandhi because she had killed many Eleanor Bumpers. And so it's not about saying, of course, it's not about saying that violence is okay, but if we are going to be anti-violence, then we can't simply assimilate into an us or especially a kind of gendered us. Yeah. Without thinking carefully about violence and retribution and malevolence and how it plays out in whose hands and on whose bodies. So it's something in that terrain, Paul. I still don't know really, but it's something in that terrain. I mean, I was thinking about it because, you know, a couple of years ago on one of the Mark Duggan, I think it was the first year commemorating Mark right. Duggan's killing at the hands of the police there at yeah. Tottenham you know, the routine tramp to Tottenham Police Station. Yeah. And then, you know, Stafford gets up and makes a lucid speech and Mark's family also yeah. testify. Yeah. And then after a little while, I'm sure you've heard her too. I, I'm ashamed to say I can't remember her name. But the young woman from the Hillsborough families makes the speech that, that actually makes all the connections you were just... Because they've been made now. Because they've been made now, exactly. Yeah. So maybe it's the time lag is the only thing that yeah. needs to be explained. Yeah. I mean, yes. But at the same time, it takes us into a confrontation with some of the more reductive ways of thinking that are often traded these days, because in a way it presupposes a kind of 
either a series of human connections, which people are very uncomfortable with now, or, and maybe they're equally uncomfortable with it, a number of kind of class-based connections to do with, with poverty and marginality and immiseration and exploitation, which have not become, people haven't grown in their sophistication to talk about those things. Maybe that will change now. Maybe the COVID situation, the pandemic, which is so much kind of anatomized all of the inequalities that were there beforehand, both in racialized form and anyway in a dysfunctional country. Yes. Maybe that will feed something there that is more habitable for everybody. I think at the beginning I said about the Black Lives Matter. Mm. I think it's such a profound statement stroke slogan because of the thing both about lives and matter when we've hardly been considered to be life and making that claim our lives matter the matter as in value but also as fleshy blood and mucus and cells and skin and and for these things that have been just objects that are not life to make the claim black lives matter and so found that a claim that hits at the very foundation of the logics. Well, I suppose for you, the term presence has been a very, very important. It has been, yeah. You know, I think of it as somewhere in a kind of constellation with visibility and recognition, but it's a very different way of of opening up that sort of limited Mm -hmm. space of attention there. So I think, in a way, what you say about somatic or vitality yeah yeah really speaks to that concept of presence and it it is linked i mean for me paul it is linked to learning to sit in a room with somebody who's come because for some reason something doesn't feel right about their life or they're in terrible distress it can be as small as something's not quite right or i'm in terrible distress i'm pulling it up and learning to sit in a room with somebody and really being present to them and allowing them to be present to you really taught me something about, I mean, whether I'm, I've learned, I'm better at it now, whether I can really do it, but it's extraordinary, Paul. One of the things I notice is that I'm a fidget. I fidget all the time. But when I'm in that role, there's a stillness that comes that I didn't think I could occupy my body in such a way because I'm really trying to pay attention and be present in the room. And it, I thought, of course, we can't be like that with everybody all the time, nor would anybody want us to be, let alone whether we could. But being present to the aliveness and the moments of deadening and the moments of possibility, even in silence, really teaches you something about being with. Mm-hmm. Being with. Yeah. And I think racism cuts all that, doesn't it? Or it tempts to. Well, I mean, I would actually say that that's a big part of what people miss when they read Fanon in a very reductive way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I also think it connects up with what we were talking about earlier, with the music, with the forms of attention that you have to cultivate yes. in some sort of sonic situations, you yeah. know, as well as the other wider fleshy yeah. response to yeah. different frequencies and things of that, which you're listening to, but not with your ears, you know. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Gail, thank you so much for making the time to have this conversation pleasure. with me this morning. And I really look forward to finding ways to continue the dialogue on the other side. If there is another side, there may not actually be another side to this. We may have to do more of this than we planned. But I really look forward to that. And once again, you know, thank you.
but there's so many other things on my list to talk to you about we haven't really got to so maybe at some future point you might enter submitting to this a second time definitely great pleasure thanks for inviting me Paul thank you for listening for more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women's Centre find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialization or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC. This podcast was produced by me, Kaisa Kahu, and executive produced by Professor Paul Gilroy.